Bible reading is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teachings allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be, be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd encourage us and fill us with awe at the reality that one day you'll bring all suffering and evil to an end and that you'll gather up your people from the four corners of the world and take them home to be with you and end once and for all, all the suffering, all the injustice, and all the indignity that comes with this broken world. We look forward, dear Lord, to the new Jerusalem where we get to spend eternity with you. And I pray, Heavenly Father, today, those of us with faith, that we would continue to be hungry for heaven. And those of us today who are still searching into spiritual things, I pray that you would help me to be simple and clear as I explain the reality that Jesus himself promised that he would come again. And we pray, Heavenly Father, this morning, as we think about these things from 2 Thessalonians, that you would encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 1968 was a very similar year to 2020. If you look back over this year, we've got um, pandemic, but also there's a great deal of other troubles that are facing us in the world. There's a great deal of political polarisation. There are social movements that um, are causing people to, to move onto the streets at quite regular intervals. There's a great deal of debate about the fact that our leaders have lost their way and they aren't able to lead us in such uncertain times. 
New technologies are changing the way we live and yet we still haven't been able to get our heads around the last technologies that we've been using, let alone new ones. There's a great pace of change, a great deal of uncertainty, and in a very troubling manner, just like in 2020, 1968 was similar in all those ways, but another thing that was really similar was the geopolitical situation around the world was very uncertain. In the US in particular, um, in the decade of the 60s, they'd witnessed a president who'd been assassinated. Martin Luther King had been assassinated, Malcolm X had been assassinated, and others aside. There were people who were marching on the streets. The Black Panther Party, very similar to the Black, Rights Matter, uh, Black Lives Matter uh, movement, was um, mobilising vast swathes of the American population. And the ripple effect that that had around the world was tremendous. In Europe, uh, in France particularly, in 1968, the union movement and the student movement got together. And at one point in Paris, it looked like Paris was going to have another revolution. There was a great deal of turmoil in 1968. Interestingly, in 1968, young Christians all over the world started to feel very uh, certain that the world they'd grown up in had changed fundamentally, and it wasn't going to look the same. They'd been brought up in the 1950s and early 60s in local churches that had been the mainstay of life in Western countries, particularly in the USA. Even in Australia, uh, I remember being told by my elders that in, in the early 60s, Gaimi Anglican Church, where I grew up, used to throw open its Sunday school doors every Sunday morning and 400 children would go to Sunday school. And that's just a little suburban church in Gaimi. But that was replicated across the whole city of Sydney, the whole country of Australia, and in fact, the whole Western world. But things were changing in the 1960s. New inventions had led to new ideas. The sexual revolution had begun. Feminism had become. Uh, social movements like um, civil rights movement, anti-war movement, the environmental movement, the gay rights movements, feminism, all these different movements were changing the society dramatically. And one of the big impacts that it had is a lot of young people started leaving the church in large numbers. And so young Christians were left asking, what, is, what are we to do in our generation? What, how do we respond to these changes? And the reason I talk about that this morning is it's very similar to our generation, isn't it? Do you ever wake up and watch the news in the morning or come home from work and turn the news on in the afternoon and think, how do I relate to this? What can I possibly do in this changing world? How can I make this place a better place when there seems to be these vast social movements that are changing our world before our eyes? And just like in the 1960s, I remember growing up in a much more understood time, I suppose, for myself in the 1970s and the 1980s, 1990s, and even the 2000s. But in the last 14 or 15 years, our country has changed dramatically, in some ways for the good and some ways not so good. We still have some very strong endemic problems in our culture. We still have too many women who are dying in their own homes at the hands of people that they trust. Domestic violence is still a massive problem in Australia. We still have a, a problem with one, trying to work out what to do with refugees. How do we have racial equality in Australia? How do we uh, raise up um, Aboriginal people to have the same opportunities as the rest of Australians? How do we mix our diverse communities of multicultural Australia? We have really big systemic problems in our culture. Also some really good things too, don't get me wrong. But often it causes us to feel dread as we think about the future because it looks so different to the past. Technologies like the iPhone has changed our families in amazing ways. 
I remember growing up in my family having a dinner every night and we'd sit around the dinner table, all of us, mum, dad and the two kids, and the thing that we could guarantee is we'd all have our undivided attention all night. But in my family, my boys usually bring their phone to the table and usually as we're having dinner, there's a little ping, 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 ping around the dinner table. So as I'm cutting into my steak, Ethan might just scroll down and just see that someone's just said, oh, the meeting tonight's been cancelled. Elijah might get a Snapchat from someone from school saying, oh, so-and-so's just been rude to me and Elijah's concerned for his friend. We're distracted. You stand at bus stops, and, or you drive past bus stops rather, and you see groups of young people and older people now all looking at their phones. This is a new world. And there are good things about this new world and there are hard things about this world, but it gets us thinking as Christians, how do we respond? Well, the reason I connected 2020 to, to 1968 is I want to encourage you with a reaction from the young Christians in 1968 that could help us to reshape how we approach the future in our generation. In 1968, young people actually thought to themselves, these problems in the world are actually too hard for us to respond to. Yes, we should help the poor. Yes, we should try and do the best we can to express the love of Jesus um, across different cultures. Yes, we should be involved in, in engaging with all the politics that there are of our time. But at the end of the day, how are we going to make a better tomorrow? The young people in the 60s decided, the Christians actually decided, in reality, at the end of the day, we can't make a better tomorrow. And we can make a difference in this world, but what we need to do is tell everyone in our generation that the one who can make a better tomorrow is coming. He's coming to solve all these problems. As human beings fight and argue with each other about how we should reorganise our societies, much of that is healthy in our democracies, it's really healthy, but also sometimes it can become very unhealthy, particularly on Facebook as everybody argues in their echo chambers and no one seems to be listening to each other and everybody seems to be sure about what they think should be, but no one's listening to each other. Yet the young people in 1968 were saying, someone is coming who's going to fix this up. He promised that it would get worse before it gets better. And he promised that when it gets worse, he will come and he'll fix it. There was a man named Larry Norman in the 1960s that I think was probably, for me, the archetypal voice of this young Christian generation. They called themselves the Jesus people, the Jesus movement, and they were preaching a message of the second coming of Jesus Christ. In the midst of all of the turmoil, um, as Larry Norman saw uh, John Lennon with Yoko Ono in Toronto, um, uh, Canada, marching, against, uh, marching for peace in Toronto, Larry wrote a song. He said, John, if you're truly wise, you'll keep your eyes on Palestine. Now, that is not a put your head in the sand and pretend that the problems of the world aren't ours. This was very, very different. Young Jesus people were preaching a message that the only true answers to the problems in life are Jesus. Larry sung, drinking whiskey from a paper cup. You drown your sorrows till you can't stand up. Why don't you have a look into Jesus? He's got the answers. Controversially, the next verse he goes on to sing, Gonorrhea on Valentine's Day. You're still looking for the perfect lay. Why don't you look into Jesus? He's got the answer. In fact, when he sang that song on stage the first time, the he didn't even get through the end of that particular song because as he sang that line, the pastor walked across, took the microphone off Larry who was singing to a church congregation and said, well, thank you, Larry. I know you're really busy. It's been terrific having you here tonight. Larry commented after that night that he was too rock and roll for the church and too Christian for rock and roll. 
These young Jesus people seemed to be stuck in the middle. No one thought they were relevant because the church thought they were too radical and the world thought they were too established. But what was their message? Jesus is coming and he's going to make everything right. You'd better get right with Jesus because not only can he start to transform your life in this world, but he can take you to the next one. He wrote an album called In Another Land. He wrote another album called Only Visiting This Planet. And even though I missed out on this decade because I'm a Gen Xer, I'm, a, I'm not a baby boomer, and I didn't grow up as a young person in the 60s and 70s, I got hold of these Larry Norman records in the early 80s and it changed the way I saw the problems of my particular life from then on. This is what Larry writes. He says, life was filled with guns and war and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wished we'd all been ready. Children died and the days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. How could you have been so blind? The father spoke, the demons dined, the son has come and you've been left behind. Now today as I talk about the second coming, I'm not going to go into the minutiae of the different arguments about different interpretations of the second coming. I simply want to say this that the Jesus people in 1968 saw the problems of their day, I think, a little differently to how we do. I think I hear more modern Christians saying, gee, I hope 2021 is better than 2020. That's the refrain of our generation. Let's just get this year over with and get back to normal. But the Jesus people had a different opinion. They said, actually, there is no normal. It's not going to get easier for us as Christians. It's just going to be the same. We live in a broken, fallen world, and the quicker we realise that, the more we can help people in this fallen, broken world with their temporal circumstances now, but ultimately helping them to introduce them to Jesus so that they know that they have the only lifeline that we have to get out of here. Jimi Hendrix famously sang about that, didn't he? There's no getting out of here, according to Jimi Hendrix in 1968, but according to Larry Norman, there was a way to get out of here. Why don't you look into Jesus? He's got the answers. Well, the Thessalonians needed to hear this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I think we need to hear it in our day too. And rather than just hoping that 2021 is better than 2020, I think what we need to start getting is hungry for heaven. Now, we woke up this morning looking forward to breakfast, didn't we? We're hungry for breakfast. In a few hours, we'll be hungry for lunch. And a few hours' time, we'll be hungry for dinner. And then the cycle will repeat itself over and over. And as some of you, if you're a little bit like me, you get hungry for a little bit of a snack, a little little sandwich while you're watching SpaceX videos before you go to bed. Don't mind a good SpaceX video, all that exciting stuff. Have a little sandwich. I get hungry. Do you get hungry? Well, are we hungry for heaven? Do we wake up every morning hoping this might be the day that Jesus comes to take us home? Could this be the day? Could this be the day or could it be tomorrow? If you knew for certain that this was your last day on earth, if you were only visiting this planet and one day you were going to be in another land, you would see this world as a bus stop. Now, if you're waiting for a bus, you don't get too comfortable in the bus stop, do you? Wouldn't it be strange if you went to the local bus stop and someone had got a nice little doona that they got from Randa Fair, a matching pillow, and they put a little framed photo up in the bus shelter and they got a little bit of a mat and they're there and, and they're sitting there with a little cappuccino waiting for the bus and you've rocked up tired, you're, you're not even thinking of the bus stop at all. You're just thinking about getting on the bus. And you stand there and you look at them and they say, would you like to sit down and have a cup of tea with me? Uh, no, I'm, on, I'm just on my way somewhere else. See, I think in 1968, the Jesus people had that view of the world. 
Their life here on earth was precious. It was given to us by God. And we have work to do while we're here, but let's not get comfortable. This isn't our home. Our home is in heaven. And the Jesus people were hungry for heaven. And they actually saw that Jesus was coming back. The problem for the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is that they were hungry for heaven, but their teachers had been telling them, sorry, lunch is cancelled. You might be hungry for heaven and can't wait for Jesus to come back because you're enduring great persecution. You've been waiting for God to come and punish your oppressors and actually show you to be the people you are, the people of God, and to to give you your great reward in heaven. But they had teachers who'd snuck in amongst them who were claiming to speak for Paul and were saying, actually, you've missed out. How terrifying for us this morning if we rocked up to church today and we didn't have the hope of heaven. Sure, we could be hungry for heaven, but imagine if we thought, oh no, we've missed out. Well, as soon as Paul finds out these Christians have this false fear, he writes to them. He says, don't worry, the second coming is still coming. And that's what I've got to say today. The second coming is coming. If you're hungry for heaven, keep staying hungry. Keep seeing this world as a bus stop. It's not the place to get comfortable. Don't worry about 2021, because 2021 might not even come. Jesus might come back before Christmas. In fact, wouldn't it be wonderful if he came back during this sermon? For those of us at home and those of us who are here, instead of going home to our lunch or to Miranda Fair or to whatever we're going to do today, instead of in, in, in an hour and a half's time, we're all going on about our week and getting ready for the week already. Imagine if Jesus came back in an hour and a half and all of a sudden all of us in an hour and a half are standing before the throne of God. Because we've witnessed Jesus coming on the clouds with the armies of heaven. We've walked out of the church into the car park and all of a sudden the sky opens up and Jesus comes with his armies and a trumpet blares and those who are dead in Christ come up out of the graves first and go to meet him in the sky and then those of us who are still living, we go up to be with him as well. How exciting would that be for this afternoon? Imagine if that was in your calendar. And then we stand before the throne of God. And those of us who've accepted Jesus as our Lord, we hear those beautiful words from God, who's the most beautiful, radiant person in the universe. He looks at you in the eye and he says these beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into joy today. Tell you what, that'd be a great end to Sunday for me. But it's coming. (laughs) Even if this comes after our death, one day we will rise up out of the graves and we will see that day. It's coming. This is what the Jesus people were looking for in 1968 and this is what I want us to develop in our hearts a bit more in 2020. Let's not be just weighed down by the problems of this world and our generation and fears about what's going to happen to our kids and all the problems that we're facing. Our fear is different to the Thessalonians. We don't think the second coming's already come. Sometimes we don't think about it at all. Their fear was that they'd missed out and maybe they'd missed out on that wonderful experience of seeing God because maybe the second coming's already come. But our fear is we don't set our hearts on heaven enough in our generation because we're so materialistic and we're so dedicated to a busy life that sometimes we forget every morning to pray, come Lord Jesus. So let's keep looking at this Thessalonians passage and get hungry for heaven. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters. This is the second coming he's teaching on. Before we move on, let's consider some of the teaching in uh, in the Bible, actually, of the second coming of Jesus. And to do that, we go all the way back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It should come up on the screen. Daniel 
Daniel said this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Daniel had been given a vision of the second coming. Even before Jesus had come the first time, Jesus, uh, Daniel knew he was coming back a second time, although we probably didn't understand what all this meant, but we do looking back, don't we? We read in chapter 7, Jesus is coming back with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancients of days and was led into his presence. What about Jesus' words himself in Matthew 24, 30 to 31? This is what Jesus says as he prepares us for this second coming. He says, just as people are destined once to die and after that to face judgment. Oh, sorry, I, I skipped one. Sorry, then, the, then verse 30, <laughs> then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all people on the earth will mourn when they see the coming of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of the heavens to the other. In other words, no one will miss out, Thessalonians. Don't worry, because when the second coming comes, it's not going to be like the first one. Jesus was born into a stable in the first coming and people who were living in Australia at the time didn't even know that that had happened until they heard about it later. This time, he's going to come in the heavens. So what happens in the heavens? The whole world can see what happens in the heavens. And so Thessalonians, you won't miss out. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer writes in verse 27 to 28, Just as people are destined once to die and then after that face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for them. So if you take Matthew 24 and Hebrews chapter 9 and look at that, we see the same rhythm that we've been introduced to all this year in our Bible teaching. When we did Daniel at the beginning of the year, we saw that there is persecution and strife caused by those kings who set themselves up in opposition to God. One day they will fall, those kings, because God's kingdom will triumph. And those who put their faith in Jesus, or in God, they didn't know exactly how that was going to work out back then, but those who put their faith in God will be saved, and those who don't will be judged. Then we, we, we looked, didn't we, at, at Joshua, and we saw the story of the city of Jericho. And as the armies of Israel approached the city of Jericho, they were faced with this same choice. Are we going to be hard-hearted and remain in our sin and be judged and mourn? Or are we going to be saved? And only one family repented of their sin. One Canaanite family, Rahab the prostitute and her family, hung the little red cord out the window. And because they did that, they were saved. But the rest of the city opposed God and were defeated. So when you look back in Matthew chapter 24, you see there that some will see the Son of Man coming and mourn, and some will see the Son of Man coming and get excited. Because if you've already trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and if you've said sorry to God for your sin and asked Jesus to have paid for your sin, your blessing will be ultimately revealed at the second coming of Jesus. But if you've resisted that and not been given forgiveness for your sin, the second coming of Jesus will be a day of judgment. So we see the rhythm, don't we? In the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's judgment and mercy, judgment and mercy. And the really great thing is Jesus hasn't come back yet today. I know I've already said I'm really excited about that, but the reason I'm excited he hasn't is it's giving more people an opportunity to repent and turn to Christ. There were seven young men at church last night listening to this same sermon. And they've been coming to Soul Revival for seven years since they were teenagers. And they still haven't quite got to the point where they're ready to make a commitment to Christ. God's given them another morning because last night they still weren't quite ready. And I'm hoping that they actually turn to Christ before the second coming so they can come to heaven with us as well. And last night, one of the boys after the sermon said to me, Stu, 
I think I finally believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. I said, wow, brother, what do you think that means? He said, I think I'm almost a Christian. I'm almost ready for the other land. I'm almost ready to say I'm only visiting this planet. And I said, keep walking, brother. Jesus will lead you and he will call you. Keep walking. Now, you might be thinking as I'm talking of loved ones yourself that you know who you love dearly, who you're hoping they too will come with us in the second coming comes. Keep encouraging and praying for them too so that they might not miss out. So the Thessalonians, though, thought they had missed out. Let's have a look at verses 1 to 2 again. Verse 2, Paul says, Don't become uneasily, oh, sorry, don't become easily unsettled or alarmed by teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't be afraid. In our generation, I want to say, if you woke up this morning and didn't even give the second coming a second thought, don't be troubled, though. This is something we can get hungry for. As we read on, we're going to see that this is definitely going to happen and we can actually start getting ready for this a little bit more and more each day. You see, for the Thessalonians, Paul helps them and he helps us. He's going to say there's going to be some things that are going to happen before the second coming that you will be able to see that the time is coming near. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So the second coming will be preceded by a man called the man of lawlessness and a time which is called the rebellion. So who is this man of lawlessness? Well, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John talks about this same man, but instead of calling him the man of lawlessness, he calls him the Antichrist which might be a more familiar term to those of us who've grown up in Western Christianity. We're more regularly calling uh, this man of lawlessness the Antichrist. You've probably heard people talk about that. Well, this is what John says in verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. As you have heard, the, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Now, let, let's unpack some of those terms here that John uses. First of all, there's this idea of the last hour. What does he mean by that? Again, there's a lot of speculation in Christian circles about what is the last hour, but I think right from John here, we see that he believes he's already in the last hour. So any, any time now, Jesus might come back. This is the last hour. So when you think about your day, I've got, a, I've got a watch that tells me how many calories I've burned a day, right? And on an Apple watch, they have these rings that close. As the day goes on, if my rings aren't closing, I start getting a bit more anxious because I haven't got much more time left. So I get really more and more aware of the, the day running out as my rings aren't finished. But what's really exciting is if I've only got a one hour to go and I only have to stand up one more time and I've only got a little bit of walking to do before I get my red ring to close, sometimes my watch says to me, you can do it, Stu. It's the last hour. You've got one more hour. Go for it, mate. And John is saying here in 1 John, it's the last hour. There's not long to go. Elsewhere in the Bible, this is called the end times. According to John, we are living in the end times now. Now, some people say that the end times don't start until the future, but I think it's really helpful here that John has a perspective that we're in the end times. This is the last hour. Jesus could come back any day because he says in reference to these, this antichrist idea. Now, what he says is, there are many antichrists and there will be an antichrist who comes. In other words, there will be a man who will set himself up against God, 
who will come, and he will be proud and arrogant and boastful. And, and he will be the most boastful anti-God person that's ever been, the Antichrist. But before that particular rebellion happens, there'll be actually many people, in fact, people in every generation who are Antichrists too. So it's quite normal for us in every generation to look for the Antichrist. And sometimes when we see a really particularly evil version of, of leadership in our generation, we think, oh, is this the Antichrist? Well, what we should be saying is, this is our Antichrist, and we'll have to wait and see if it is the Antichrist. So the German Christians in Germany were pretty convinced Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. They couldn't think of anybody more boastful or more arrogant who'd set themselves up at Christ. And he used to put swastikas in churches. And he used to say to churches, you have to bow down to the churches. Some of the Christians in China at the moment are wondering if their leadership is the Antichrist because they're retranslating the Bible into a communist worldview. Now, you know the story about Jesus where Jesus has the, 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 the prostitute... Uh, not the prostitute, sorry, I've gone back to Rahab in the Old Testament. Remember the story of the lady who was caught in adultery and she gets brought before Jesus and they say, let's stone her. And Jesus says famously... Those who are without sin cast the first stone. Well, the Chinese government, purportedly, according to Open Doors, are, are changing that to be in line with Confucianism and the Communist Party ideology. And in their text of the story, Jesus says, stone her. How is that? So, understandably, there could be Christians in China right now going, is this the Antichrist? Is this government an Antichrist? Well, it isn't an Antichrist. Is it the one? We have to wait and see. Because Jesus said in... Again in Matthew 24, 24, for false prophets and false messiahs will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, the plan of the Chinese government is to even, if possible, deceive Christians in China into thinking that this new Bible is better than the old one. So, Thessalonians, listen to this, he says, chapter 2, verse 4. The Antichrist, who he calls the man of lawlessness, will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is what Daniel had warned the Jews about with the coming of Epiphanes in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36 to 37. This is how old this is. See, in Daniel's dreams of the statue, you know the big statue with with all the kingdoms represented that would come one after the other. There was one that was going to be worse than any one, and it was Epiphanes, who was going to come and set himself up in the Lord's temple so that people would worship him. That was the great idolatry. But even he is going to pale into insignificance compared to the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness who comes. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 19 to 12, Paul says, all this is going to happen because this is how Satan works. He tries to confuse and stop people trusting in Jesus. And he'll use all sorts of displays of power and through signs and wonders even to serve the lie. And in verse 10, and all the ways of wickedness that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. See that? They didn't love the truth and so were deceived. So if you love the truth, presumably you can't be deceived. The Jesus people in 1968 believed the truth that Jesus was coming back and they thought the world was such a mess that the only thing that was going to sort it out was Jesus. Do we believe that truth too? Well, coming back to verses 5 and 6, Paul says to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 5, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? 
And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. That asked me to ask a question. When is this going to happen? When will the Antichrist come? Back in 1989, I thought Gorbachev was the Antichrist because I read an article somewhere that said that apparently Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the, the, the leader of the Soviet Union at the time, on his forehead, forehead had a mark, and I read that apparently that mark covered 66.6% of his forehead, the mark of the beast. This dude was the Antichrist, but wow, did Gorbachev let me down. Because all he did was get rid of communism, which was great, don't get me wrong freed a lot of people. They could all go and buy TVs and fridges. But, <laughs> that was meant to be a joke. The Berlin Wall came down and everybody, you know, all that happened. But I thought that was going to usher in the coming of Jesus. See, be careful when someone says that person is the Antichrist or Jesus is coming back next week. Or if someone says, I have a prophecy, whether written or in word, that Jesus is coming back in the next few days. If anything, the Jesus people went a little bit too far with their excitement for the second coming. Even Larry Norman wrote a song called The Ode to the Last Generation. See, he got a little bit ahead of himself. He doesn't know if he's the last generation. It would have been far more accurate to say that the last generation is all those generations who are living in the end times, waiting for Jesus to come back. Yes, we have antichrists, but one will come. Even Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So beware of Christian leaders who try and tell you that the, you are the last generation definitively, because how can they know? Jesus doesn't even know. How can a human being speak with more authority than Jesus? He himself is waiting, sitting next to the father right now. I don't know physically, literally, if he's looking at God going, are we ready yet? I don't know if he's doing that. Are we ready yet? Are we ready yet? Are the angels standing in heaven saying to God, are we ready yet? Are we ready yet? It's like waiting for the grand final, isn't it? You can't wait. When you've got a team in the grand final, what do you do? You decorate your car with your colours. And what I'm trying to say is we don't know, unlike a grand final, we don't know the date of the grand final, but it's coming and we're going to win. The grand final is coming and Jesus will win victory over evil once and for all. It'll be done and dusted. What are we doing in the meantime? Verse 7, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so till he's taken out of the way. How will this end? Verse 8, he goes on to say, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy him in the splendour of his coming. I've got three thoughts that come to my mind briefly at the end here. How did God create the universe? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created the universe with what? Can anyone remember? What was that? A bit louder? With his word. He spoke and the universe came into power. That's pretty powerful, just quietly. How did Jesus declare his victory over sin on the cross? It is finished. He spoke and it was right and it was true. Hey, he died on the cross and gave up his body and he defeated sin and death. How is he going to defeat Satan and the lawless one? This is really beautiful. With his breath. 
all my breath achieves is a sound and the dispersion of a few atoms, maybe centimetres away from my body. When Jesus opens his mouth and breathes, it defeats Satan once and for all. Imagine him coming in the clouds of heaven with his angels and he doesn't have to lift a finger, he just breathes. And he gathers us all up. So what should we do in the meantime? This is how the letter finishes. In verses 13 to 16, we are to wait, we are to stand firm, because we are saved and we are called, we are to hold fast to the teachings. God will encourage us in our good deeds in the meantime. I'm going to leave us with verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm, hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word or mouth or by letter. Don't listen to anything else that disagrees with this. And stand in the bus stop. Don't sit down. Stand firm. Stand in this world. Don't get comfortable. Don't think joy will come to you by the amount of toys that you have or the amount of money that you have or the amount of holidays or leisure that you have or the amount of success you have or the amount of kids you have or how big your house is or how many dogs you have or whether you have a better car than the person who lives next door to you. Don't, don't be tricked into thinking that is the meaning of life. Don't be hungry for the things of this world. Be hungry for heaven. And I'm going to leave you with the words of Larry Norman and then I'm going to give Jesus the final word. Larry also wrote in his Ode to the Last Generation, which I think makes sense if you think of all generations that are living in the end times as the last generation. This is what he says. Come to reason, face the day. Now's the season, old things pass away. Stand beside us. Come on and reach out and take his hand. He will guide us in another land. In another land. What is that other land? Well, in Revelation 22, verse 20, Jesus says this. He who testifies to these things says, I am coming soon. And John finishes the letter with, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And I wanted to finish my sermon this morning with the words of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Can you think about making those your words every morning when you wake up? Because I think it will change the way you see the day. Because you know he's coming to fix everything. So let's stand firm and let's love in good deeds and wait at the bus stop until the bus pulls up to take us home.